Let us bow in prayer to our Lord Jesus. Lord, we come here today, and at this point I ask that our our hearts would be even more directed towards worshiping you. Thank you for the gift of music, the gift of voice, and thank you for the opportunity to come here and to give those gifts back to you in praise. May our faith be more than a song, and may our, our, our relationship with you be much greater than the time we spend in a church building. Teach us today how to prove nothing to anyone except Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. If you would, please be seated for tonight's scripture reading. Would you please listen as I read this text that speaks about how uh, Christ is triumphant over death. This is from Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and if you have not been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority? In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Tonight we're, we're talking about we have nothing to prove except Christ. I've been searching for a, an, an opening for this sermon, and I think a personal illustration is, is likely best. I struggle with wanting to prove myself. We moved here as a family in 2011 with the Mayberry family. Our goal was to start a church. Before then, as we anticipated moving here, once we were here, and increasingly more since arriving here, I have felt an inward pressure to prove that I didn't lead my family on a wild goose chase, to prove to others that what we did was valid. That's just one of countless examples where my flesh struggles with wanting to prove myself so that people will say, good job, Daniel. Most of us struggle with this. We want to prove ourselves. We want to 
be praised for how we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and we made a way and we proved that we were successful instead of failures. The problem with that is it goes against what God teaches us in the gospel. The gospel, according to Jesus, is not proving ourselves in order to be accepted by God, but in fact, it's the admission that we cannot be successful without the grace of God. Before coming to faith in Christ and after coming to faith in Christ, there will be a constant war within our hearts that tries to get us to wage war with our flesh and prove that we are good enough. This is not something new to us. In fact, Paul is writing in this letter to the church at Colossae, and they are dealing with the same thing. He is fearful that what is happening to them or what will happen to them will be what happened in other places where people come in and say, yes, you have Christ and and that's good, but you need more. So look with me in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. This is where we start in tonight's letter. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I learned something new this week, which is encouraging. I like to learn new things most of the time, unless it reveals faults in myself, and I I like to just suppress those and live in ignorance for a while. But I learned something new this week. The, The Greek word that is translated for us, takes captive, is translated takes captive, is sila gagan. And that Greek word is very similar to the Greek word for synagogue, which is suna gage. They sound very much alike. They look very much alike. And I learned this week that Paul was likely making a pun. He was using this specific word because this is the only time we find it in the New Testament. He was using this specific one that sounded like synagogue to point out the fact that the Jewish people were trying to take these Gentiles away from just Christ alone and put them back under, or put them under for the first time, Circumcision and fulfillment of the Torah as law. And so he was using a pun and saying, don't let them synagogue you or don't let them take you captive. They were saying to them, yes, you're, you're good enough, and, or, or not, you're not good enough, but you have Christ, but you're not good enough. You need to follow in these ways too to prove your worth. You're incomplete. You still have something to prove. Well, he wrote this letter after he had written a letter to the church at Galatia. Likely other cities dealt with the same problems, but the church at Galatia, we know specifically, dealt with this because he addressed it in his letter. And I want to share with you Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 and following, a section of this text. He was writing again to another Gentile church, and he, which is a non-Jewish church, and he said, Formerly, when you did not know God... You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, 
how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So Paul was writing preemptively to the church at Colossae in fear that the same thing that happened in Galatia might be happening there. It may be possible for us even today to exalt the Father, God the Father, more than we exalt God the Son. It may be possible for us to, uh, to miss the simplicity of who we have in Christ because we are placing our faith in some form of flesh that is leading us away from Him. Paul was afraid because if they started to trust in these other things, it would take them away from Jesus. And this is the, the saddest part, is they would leave one system of Christlessness and enter into another one, even though they thought it may be godly. Paul says anything other than Christ is powerlessness. There's nothing we can do to add value to the work of the Lord Jesus. But there is something within us that wants to prove ourselves and maybe even prove our love to the Lord. But God hasn't called us to go out and prove ourselves. He hasn't called us to follow a list of rules in order for people to pat us on the back, and He hasn't called us to fulfill a, a limitless list of things in order to prove to Him how much we love Him. He has called us to have faith in the Lord Jesus. So I want to give us two reasons tonight why we have nothing to prove except Christ. Number one, Christ is the fullness of God. Christ is the fullness of God. Now this is an aspect of the Lord Jesus that really overwhelms me. It did this week as I was studying this text and contemplating it. It may be possible for us to exalt the Father, or, or Jesus, less than the Father. And the reason is because sometimes we think of Christ and we realize that He's the Son who submitted Himself to the Father. He's the Son who prayed and obeyed the Father. He prayed to Him, and so naturally we think that in some way maybe Jesus is inferior, less than the Father. Because he is submitting to him. But this verse here says very clearly that Jesus is not like the fullness of God or like God, but he says he is the fullness of God. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 9. This is where we get this from in today's text. For in him, and we're speaking of Christ here, in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is one of the most clear statements in the Bible regarding the divinity of the Lord Jesus. Paul is a former Pharisee, so if anyone knows, he knows that there is only one God. And so for him to make a claim that Jesus is God is a really big deal. He would be quick to discredit anything that, that took away from God being one. That is a standard belief of Judaism and also Christianity. And that is why his declaration that Jesus is the fullness of God in body is so powerful. 
He's clarifying again for us what we learned a couple of weeks ago in chapter 1, verse 19, and that verse will be here too. It says in chapter 1, verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And if you remember the poetry that we... Uh, this is a poem, and we remember the, the poetry that we talked about that day. And this was the, the climax of that great poem that Paul wrote. But now he starts to apply what this means for us. He's saying Jesus is not simply a fully human being. He's not simply fully human, even though he is. And he's saying he's not simply the fullness of God or, or full of God himself, which he is. But he's saying he was and he is the bodily form taken by God himself. He is God in all of his fullness. Jesus wasn't like a God who had divinity living within him. He was the divine God himself. Another interesting fact about this particular text is the word, or the translation that it says, fullness of God. The Greek word there for God is theotes. There are two different kinds. They sound exactly the same to me, but one of them has a letter added. And the one that has the letter added of I, or the iota in, um, in Greek, means divinity. So it would say that Jesus is full of divinity. But this one is more powerful than that. It's not just divinity, but he is saying he is the fullness of, literally, the deity. He is the fullness of the God. I don't know if that's blowing your mind like it did mine, but it did. It made me stop and think for a minute, wow, I think even after pastoring for however many years I have, I have totally undervalued the worth of Christ. He is the fullness of the one true God. So why do we need to prove only Christ in our life? Because He is the fullness of God. Second reason is this. In Christ, we are proven. In Christ, we are proven. So being a Christian means that we belong to Christ. We no longer own ourselves or belong to ourselves, but we belong to Him. Another way to say that we belong to Christ is we are in Christ. Christ. So we are a child of God only when we are found in Christ. Instead of trying to prove ourselves worthy to God, we submit ourselves to Christ as Lord, and in doing so, we are in Him, and we now ourselves become proven. We become children of God through having our faith placed in Christ. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 10. He just finished saying for in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then he says, and you have been filled or completed in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He said, you have been filled here. So if when we belong to Christ, we are given a fullness. We are completed in Christ. What that means is God is trying to and, and desiring to, and He does. He fills us with His love and with His joy and with His peace. 
And He does that through the richness of having His Spirit live within us. That is our inheritance. And it comes through faith in Christ. I have a neighbor who is a practicing Muslim. And he's in the later part of his season of Ramadan right now. There's only a few days left. It's 30 days of fasting for the adult followers of Islam. And I spoke with him this week, and I was asking him how it went. And he explained certain aspects of it. And one aspect that he focused on, he said, well, when we do this part, it's, it's like we get extra credit. We do some extra things, and there's, there's extra credit, and it's, it's more pleasing to Allah. Well, there's a contrast here from Islam and Christianity, and this is a quite sharp contrast. The type of worship in that particular religion is a type of worship that is without grace. As Christians, we we worship the Lord through grace. It's not about proving ourselves. It's not about getting extra credit. In the Islam faith, it's something has to be proved and shown in order to please Allah. In the Christian faith, we say, I have nothing to prove. I'm guilty. And my only proof is that Christ has become my righteousness. Fasting also happens in Christianity, but there's a difference in that as well. Fasting in Ramadan, the season, is an obligation to a God who has a list of demands. Fasting in Lent is an opportunity for us as Christians to know the God more who Himself already met His demands. We know Christ more through our suffering when we suffer through the season of Lent. But we don't have to look outside the Christian faith in order to find contrast with grace. Many churches demand that baptism be done by a certain method or it's not right. Many Christians and churches demand abstinence from certain foods or drinks or you're not a Christian. Many separate Christians based upon spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues and prophecies and there are certain tiers of Christianity that you can go through. We can name multitude after multitude of divisions within the Christian family. Many and most of these things take away or try to add value to the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. When we add anything to Christ, we devalue the work of the Lord. When we add anything to His work, we are devaluing what He has done for us by saying, that's great, but it's not enough. When we make demands of people above faith and trust and obedience in Christ, we become enemies of the cross. But when we are in Christ, we're completed. It's finished. We're filled. We have been weighed, measured, and found worthy. We are proved in Christ because Jesus is the fullness of God and we are new creatures within His fullness. 
The last section of this scripture is, I want to just read it for us. It'll be on the screen for you to follow. This is what Christ has done for us. Some of the things. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. I want to cover more of this tonight, but we're going to have to save some of that for next week because it's too good for me to try to finish at the end of this. What we are learning tonight is that Jesus is the supreme authority. We were dead to sin, in sin, but we were made alive with Christ. Paul said it isn't about what people do with the male body that matters. What matters is that you are buried with the king in baptism and also raised with him in power. Instead of putting off a small piece of flesh, we are putting off an entire way of life. We no longer live trying to prove ourselves and our faithfulness. We no longer try to live proving our worth to others. As Christians, we no longer live trying to prove our value or worthiness or our our love for God. We live by faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. And that's why we have joy. And that's why we have nothing to prove except Christ alone. Which leads me to my final question. How do we prove Jesus? If we have nothing to prove in life except to prove Jesus, what does it mean? In fact, the song right before the sermon says how I've proved Him over and over. What does it mean to prove Jesus? Here's how we prove Him. We prove Him by exercising our faith in Him in every aspect of our lives. We prove our faith in Him, or we prove Him by having our faith in Him affect and determine every aspect of our lives our family, our marriage, our parenting, our friendship, our work. We prove Christ when we put His desires and His commands above our own. We trust Him in our marriages and we live faithfully to our spouse in order to honor the Lord. We trust Him with our kids and we love them with grace and truth in order to honor the Lord. We stay with people who are unfaithful to us at times. Not because they deserve it, but because Jesus was faithful to us in our unfaithfulness. That is how we prove Christ. The Christian life, though we have nothing to prove except Christ, Christ, it is a life of sacrifice. We don't have to prove anything to God in order to be accepted by Him. When our faith is in Christ and truly in Him, we can live a life where we really are not fearful of what other people think of us. 
But when we live a life proving Christ, it will cost us a great deal. We prove Jesus by giving up our rights. We prove Him by honoring Him and saying, You are Lord and King, and I belong to You. And while this may hurt, or this may not make sense, and this may be a fiery trial that I have to go through, I know that You are with me, and I will follow You because I know You are faithful. You see, the world, it, it likes to lie to us and take us captive. It tells us that we're not good enough. I would imagine most of us would admit if we had a private survey, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but if we had a private survey and it asked, have you ever wondered if you were good enough for whatever, I would imagine most of us had, have had those doubts at times where we don't feel good enough. And the world wants to tell us that, and that we're not good enough, and that God can't love you no matter what, or God can't love you because you haven't measured up. That's what the world tells us. But that leaves us hopeless and tirelessly wondering if we are doing enough to please God. Have I done enough? Have I done enough now? It also leaves us desperately despondent when we fail. Because when we prove that we can't live up to perfection, where does that leave us? But Jesus tells us good news. He knows that we're not good enough. So he starts off the same way. He's like, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're not, you're not good enough. In fact, you're pretty bad. So bad that I had to die for you. But he said, you're not good enough. But then the good news becomes... The news becomes good at this point. Because He loves us while we were still sinners. He loves us while we were rebelling against Him. He loves us by entering into our broken state. The fullness of God came down into our broken world and became broken for us. It was Him who was good enough. He lived up to the perfect standard. It was Him who proved Himself all the way to death on the cross and then was stamped, approved, if you will, by God the Father as He was resurrected, never to die again. And when we believe in Him, we belong to the family of God and we enter into a covenant that will never be broken. We have nothing to prove except Christ. When our faith is in the Lord Jesus, the only thing we have to prove is simply Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, every day is a day which we will be tempted to trust in ourselves instead of Your grace. Protect our hearts from desiring to prove our worthiness in order to increase our pride. Lord, every day is an opportunity for us to lose hope due to our inability to live up to Your perfect standard of holiness. I pray You would protect our hearts from despair and fill us with the joy of knowing that we are complete and full through the faithfulness of Jesus. Lord, increase our holiness as we strain forward to become as much like You as possible 
May our realization of who we are in Christ powerfully cause us to walk in victory over the limited and defeated powers of this world. Give us strength to prove Christ through sacrificial faith in every area of our lives. It truly scares me to pray that prayer because that kind of life is hard. But you have done so much for us. We want to do for others what you have done for us in Christ. Thank you for the grace you have shown us. Thank you for not giving up on us. We acknowledge you as the Lord and the King, not only of this church and your church, but you are the Lord and King of the entire world. We praise you and we ask these things in the supreme and exalted name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Tonight, we have an opportunity for every single person in this room to respond to the message you have heard. Are you a skeptic tonight? You're not alone. We're all skeptics. We all have doubts. We're all learning. We invite you to ask questions of us, either after church. I'll be standing over here on the left praying with people. If you would like to be prayed for, I would be more than happy to do that. If you're a believer tonight, we invite you to celebrate communion with us. This act of worship is a historic Christian practice that Christ himself instituted on the evening before his crucifixion. Uh, The church in the Bible is described as a family. You hear that kind of talk around Connection Church as well. This ordinance, this practice, is one that's celebrated by all who are a part of the family of God. All who are placing their faith in Jesus Christ, proving not themselves, but Jesus alone. And finally, if you're someone here tonight who was a skeptic, but not a believer yet, you are ready to place your faith in Christ. You've been convinced by the words you've heard tonight, by the Holy Spirit's work in your life. We invite you to come, stand from where you're sitting in a moment, and place your faith in Christ by receiving communion for the first time. We invite you in doing this to lay down your life, your desires, your obligation to prove yourself, and look to Christ who has done it for you. It's here at the table. There's one in the back as well. Of the new covenant, where there's no shame, there's no need to prove yourself, because at this table, we experience community, not only with one another as brothers and sisters under Christ, but community, just as that verse said, in the fullness of God. We are found in Him. So come tonight, skeptical of having questions, believing or professing your faith in Christ to celebrate with the family of God. I'm going to pray in just a moment, but before I do that, I'm going to be quiet. And let the uncomfortable silence be a time for you to confess sins before you come to the table. Be a time for you to prepare your heart to think for just a moment on the ways that you are trying to prove yourself and say, God, thank you for proving that.
Thank you that I don't have to worry about that. And then I'll pray. And after I pray, you can come to the front. There will also be a station of communion at the back. There will be a plate of bread. You take a piece of the bread and the words will be spoken to you. This is Christ's body which is broken for you. You take the bread and step over to the cup. And as you dip the bread in the cup of your choice, the words will be spoken to you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Receive those words and the power that comes with it. And then partake of communion and you can return to your seat. So let's have a moment of silence. Then I'll pray. And then you respond, whoever you are here, as God is calling you right now. Father, we give you praise tonight for you are worthy. You have proven your love to us by giving the ultimate sacrifice. We confess that in our self-centeredness, we often try to prove ourselves worthy of the act of love. But tonight we come clothed in humility recipients of your grace to commune with you. We come confessing our failures and standing on the new covenant instituted by the blood of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. After the musicians have come and received communion, I invite you to celebrate as well.